0: What is up, everybody? Welcome to the latest Mortcast on CSG. I'm, of course, your host, Jeff Morton. And this, uh, as always, is presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's number one sportsbook app. Um, you know, gambling's legal now in Colorado. We've got, uh, you know, as of May 1st, actually, and we've got sports going on, and everyone wants to see some sports. you got the newest golf major or the only golf major this year, the PGA championship coming up this weekend. Uh, And now is your time to take advantage of whatever DraftKings has to offer. Um, Download the top rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the code MHS when you sign up. For a limited time, users can uh, get a sign-up bonus of up to $1,000. That's right. DraftKings Sportsbook is going all out with a sign-up bonus of up to $1,000. Just enter code MHS when you sign up only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Colorado only. Bonus comprised of first deposit bonus and a first bet match each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Well, this is a special uh, CSG today because we are talking to a guy I talked to uh, on the radio a couple weeks ago. Uh, you You may remember him from such films as Freak and Roll and Into the Fog and War Paint Live. A man who just wrote a really, really good book called Hard to Handle, uh, Life and Death of the Black Crows, and his band Trickery, he released a new album called Full Circle and Then Some in October. It's really good, particularly the song Born to be Blue. I highly, highly recommend you check out that song. It is Steve Gorman. Hello, Steve.
1: Hello, sir. How are you?
0: I am fantastic. Uh, it's a good day here in, in Denver. Um, I would appreciate you coming on the radio show a couple of weeks ago and uh I wanted to do a follow-up with you uh for this mm-hmm. and uh just because as I said on the radio, I'm a I'm a nerd, Black Crows nerd, fan since I was thirteen years old. And beautiful. <laughs> and as I said, and this is a little bit of a context, and you and I talked about this in, in email, but I'm a fan of the Denver Nuggets and I'm a fan of the Black Crows, and both of y'all made me work so freaking hard to be a fan <laughs> yeah. and it's what it's done is it's created i mean it's either stockholm syndrome or it's just because i'm that dedicated uh, yeah. and i just my fandom is undying because of that and i honestly think that,
1: well i've always i've always kind of seen myself yeah. as the alex english of of the black crows <laughs> okay, good. so good you know it makes sense like, to me
0: understated scorer uh, uh you know high, high jump shot
1: <laughs> I could go in and, and, and work the Kiki Vandewey angle if I have to, but, you could. You,
0: know. you could. Well, the, yeah. hey, the, the number two jersey is iconic. and uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, I'll start this off by saying, like, okay, you're a big Kareem Abdul-Jabbar fan. Uh, yes. I have seen you uh, mention this uh, a lot. And what made you uh, a Jabbar fan? Uh, was it from his days in Milwaukee, or was it just, like, when you saw him later winning championships with the Lakers?
1: Well, I just, I, well, it's funny. Cause I was always a, a basketball fan um, and I was at, and as a kid, I was always for, uh, you know, I grew up in Baltimore and they were the Baltimore bullets were before they moved to Washington. Yeah. Um, and then they did move, but we were still bullets fans sort of. And as a very little kid, the, they were playing the Lakers on TV one day. And just to piss off one of my older brothers, I said, I'm a Lakers fan. I mean, that's all it was. It was just, you yeah, know, well, I'm for the Lakers. And, <laughs> and so I kind of always liked the Lakers. And then obviously with Jabbar, it was just this, he was, I didn't know much about him. And in the mid to late 70s, no one knew much about anybody. But the one thing you knew about Jamar was about Jabbar was he was kind of surly. No one yeah. liked him. He just yeah. had a bad rep. And so I just adopted him. Like, man, I love that guy. Um, obviously, he's his play speaks for itself. But there's a reason you connect with certain people beyond that. But then um, I was all, I was an obsessive Magic Johnson fan. His two years at Michigan State, you know, I'm a Michigan fan. But the first time I saw him play, I was like, "That's my guy." I don't care if he's in East Lansing. I love Magic Johnson. And so when he went to the Lakers, it was just done. I was like, "Oh my God, this is this is great." Magic and Jabbar. Yeah. And so it, there was just no looking back. I mean, those were my two favorite players. But you know, I always, I always, I like Jabbar as kind of just to prove a point, or just to, you know, it started like I said as almost like a joke mm-hmm. with the Lakers and Jabbar. But when Magic got there, it became very, very serious. Yeah, and I, I spent the '80s in a purple and gold fever dream, you know, just, just obsessively following the Lakers.
0: You and Jack, man, it's uh, <laughs> number. I, I, I'll, I, it's amazing because I remember '85, um, the Nuggets played the, the, the. uh uh, Lakers in the Western Conference Finals, and then Kareem—talk uh, about surly. Kareem like goes like just does an elbow, and it hits English's thumb, and it breaks it. The Nuggets mm-hmm. were done, obviously. After that, they just—they had no chance. They had no chance anyway. But that wing, they were really right had no chance. And I spent the next five years hating his guts. <laughs>
1: yeah because of that sure
0: (laughs) but well like I hated
1: Larry Bird with with the entirety of my being for his whole career and then the day he retired I literally had tears in my eyes you know what I mean I was like I hated him but I respected and loved but I knew he was you know the counterpoint to magic they had I knew they were actually friends I knew this and I hated every member of the Celtics so passionately and I look back now and like, I'll watch Celtics highlight drills on YouTube, you know, and I'm like, man, what a team. I loved all those guys, you know, but at the time I, that was, it came, I, my, I respected them and hated them with every, the way a good sports fan does, Oh yeah. you know, but then when they, when you get past that, you know, it's like, man, I love those teams. I loved, like I said, I'll, I'll watch a Celtics game right now from 1986 and just absolute awe, just love it, you know, every minute of it
0: you know, it's amazing. I, I, I felt that way about the bulls. And then I saw the yeah. last dance and I'm like, Oh man, they were good. I, why did I spend the nineties hating this <laughs> dynasty? Right.
1: Why did Well, I, get- I, I was, I bagged on them in 91. Cause of course they beat the Lakers, but then, yeah. uh, you know, definitely by the third one, I was, I got, I had to get over myself. You know, I was like, okay, Steve, you're missing a pretty good show here. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know, the Lakers ain't coming <laughs> back. Magic's gone. And, uh, and this is a pretty freaking good team. So uh, I got over yeah. it earlier than a lot of people. Well,
0: but yeah. if you were an
1: eighties, if you were an eighties fan, Jordan was, he was a punk, you know, you're like, who are you to get in the way of magic and Larry, you
0: know? well, it's ex- especially, I mean, I, um, Magic Johnson announcing he had a uh, HIV is one of those moments. Where were you? Like, where were you? How did you yeah. hear it? Where were you? And I'll never forget being riveted. I mean, absolutely glued to the radio wondering, mm-hmm. Like, how? Because back then, you know, AIDS was not what it is now. And, and HIV. Oh, no. It was a and, death sentence. We all and, thought he
1: was going to be dead within a year.
0: Exactly. And it was, it was, we had spent the, the decade of the 80s being fed just so much, like, scare propaganda uh, mm-hmm. by conservatives in America that this was, like, part of that thing. And then people wondering what, why was magic like this, all this stuff. And I will never, it was a gut punch. It was an absolute gut punch to me and I, I will never forget it. And I think the NBA of the eighties changed immediately uh, of that yeah. day. It's like, it's like nine 11 was the end of the nineties. And this was like the end of the eighties yeah. for me.
1: Yeah. I, we were actually, we were in pre-production for Southern harmony. I was, uh, I was driving out to Chris's house and I heard on the radio, there's going to be a press conference today. Magic Johnson is, Making a, and they didn't say he's retiring, they just said Magic Johnson is holding a press conference. And they were speculating, and someone said the word positive test, and then they immediately thought that meant for cocaine. Hmm. That's what the guys on the sports station were saying like, this must be this may, might be a drug test or something, we'll see. And I'm driving out to Robinson's house going, Man, what the magic, really weird. And we get there and we all, we were knocking songs around for like an hour, but like everybody was aware of it. Like the other guys in the band even were like, Hey, something's going on with Magic Johnson, which trust me, speaks to how ubiquitous the NBA and Magic Johnson was in 1991. If the other members of the black crows even heard about it. And so we all stopped and went upstairs and put the TV on at whatever time it was, you know, six or seven Atlanta time. And and he walked up to the podium and I, he said, because I've tested positive for the HIV virus. And I just immediately just tears. They didn't come down my face. They like shot out of my face. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, I was done for the day. We all watched it and we were in shock. And like, seriously, it's like, all right, let's go back downstairs. And I was like, nah, I'll see you all tomorrow. I just oh, drove man. home. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was devastated.
0: Oh, I was. Because thinking.
1: like you said, I, I thought he was, I was like, oh, my God, Magic Johnson's about to die. I mean, it just broke my heart.
0: Well, it's amazing, too, because uh, Freddie Mercury announced he had AIDS and died, like, a, less than a month later. Yeah. And that yeah. was just, like, the back-to-back was really, really yeah. weird on that. Um, yeah. We didn't need to go on an AIDS tangent, but it was, it, was, it was.
1: Well, but, you know, it's, I, well, for me, I mean, it's all just, it's all, but that's all connected, like, that working on that record. You know, it's funny, because at the time, you know, Chris said later, like the lyrics to Remedy were all about HIV and stuff. And just, there was a theme underneath it all. I never knew that. Like I, I, I rarely asked Chris, like, what are you talking about? I either dug the lyrics or I didn't or, you know, and I don't, I obviously never asked him what that meant, but it was just a, it was a series of things that were going on. And he was thinking about all these various things, but that was one of the things, you know, that was watching that press conference wormed its way into his brain, the way things did. That was a part of it. Well, I'll tell you
0: what, uh, when, until you said in your book that uh, London, P, or P25 London had uh, Empty Bottle Saviors was about Eddie Vedder, I would have had no idea. I, what, uh, what, right, yeah. yeah, what's what What would lead anyone to believe that that was about mm-hmm. Eddie, Eddie Vedder, Eddie fucking Vedder? I, I, I just, it's the yeah. things that you that go through your head. And if you're a lyric writer, I suppose that that's what Uh, that's what you think of you know but Mm -hmm. um, you know moving into that in fact I I actually had was thinking about it uh, I watched uh, the documentary that ESPN did on uh, the 94 OJ Simpson thing were you guys out of LA by that time and were you starting promotion
1: oh for the chase and stuff yeah Yeah. I was back in Atlanta when all that was happening the we were we had finished the record
0: that was uh, that was another moment that will forever be burned into my brain, and it just yeah NBA moments, you know. Uh, I'm such a fan, and I and I think and actually I was thinking about that when you were when I was uh, listening to your book. And by the way, anyone who's listening to this, the audio version of Steve's book. I have both the the book and the audio version. The audio version is <laughs> magnifique. Okay, just just <laughs> nice. invest invest in that. Yeah. Just it's worth it just for the Jimmy Page part and the the absolute. It, an avalanche of emotion that comes out during that part, but I will yeah. cover that later uh, in the podcast. Um, so, I have been one of those people, and said this is why I'm such a Crows nerd. Is that I always thought there's like pivot moments in your the band's career. You know, you had the rise with with uh, Shaker Money Maker, and I saw the concert before Chris got arrested. We covered that on the the radio show. And Mm -hmm. there was The Rise and then Southern Harmony. And I think you guys were following the normal band arc at that time. You know, it was, other than Southern Harmony being, or not Southern, other than uh, Shaker Money Baker being such a big, huge, massive hit, She Talks to Angels was everywhere uh, in the Mm -hmm. summer of 1991. Um, But going from that, I think the High is the Moon tour leading into what became tall and America was a crux point a pivot point in your career that i think that i i just don't know if you guys i think your idea of releasing the ep with the songs you recorded in 1993 in new orleans was mm-hmm. probably the best idea you guys could have done. Be done because i think between the music genres changing i mean by the time we get to 1994 got bands like bush and uh, live are all over the yeah. radio and all that. I think by that time, you guys would have fit in right at, well, Exit, specifically, the song Exit, would have fit right in in 1993. I think there was some, some momentum lost by the time you guys got to a Yeah.
1: Well, I, I, those that was a really frustrating time for everybody, you know, <clears throat> in the moment. <clears throat> but, you know, now looking back, almost 30 years later, those things are really clear as to what, could have been. We did that session was in the fall of ninety two, actually, but I wanted it to come out in the summer of ninety-three or spring of ninety-three. You know, we it was hard to wait two years between Shaker Moneymaker and Southern Harmony. You know, it was like February ninety to May of ninety two, and that was way longer than we would have wanted. Yeah. But we had to promote Shaker Moneymaker like crazy. We did what we had to do. And so, you know, we we very much thought 24 months is the most we'll ever wait between albums. Like we knew just generally for our own mindset, that made sense. And I think that the biggest shift, like you said, 93 and 94 were, were huge years for things really shifting around that we had no control over, but had we had an album ready to go in the spring of 94, I, I do believe, and, and, and there's two points to that. Um, you know, whether someone appreciates tall or even Amorica or not, isn't really the point. We I look back, and it seems to me like if we had done our original plan, which is make that record with Brendan O'Brien, that record would have been out in the spring of ninety four and And it's not that Brendan O'Brien's some miracle producer, but just where he was in the world at the time and his legitimate real connection to our band, it just made perfect sense. Radio was embracing everything Brendan O'Brien did. and behind this all this behind the scenes shit can be boring to people, but the reality is rock radio had been totally blown over by alternative rock radio. Yeah. And those stations, you know, some of them really wanted to support the Black Crows, and we just didn't give them an album that they felt fit. If Brennan O'Brien had produced the album, and if it had been on the heels of Exit and Bewildered and and those kind of songs coming out, you know, it's, and again, this is all speculative. I mean, what happened was good enough and interesting enough, but mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where when you look back, you realize like, wow, that, that two and a half years, between Southern Harmony and Morica, that was a, that was bone crushing, you know, for us, for where we fit into the scheme of things. And again, to people who love the band and love the music, they don't care about any of that stuff. But at the time, yeah. you know, the, the band really did, we did care about those things. I mean, I'm the only one who will admit it, but you know, everybody wanted to still be selling a lot of records. Everyone, you know, we talked about Amorica, we would put on Amorica to ourselves and think this is going to be the biggest one yet. Like we really believe that. Like we thought this thing was going to come out and take over the world. So it was something we all wanted, but but I didn't see it all so clearly at the time. I'm not suggesting I did, and everything I just said may not have worked either. You never know. Yeah. But it's just it's just at the at the there was just a lot of there was a lot of wheels that got spun in those two years for us that v- very unnecessarily. It was really frustrating and aggravating at the time, and then in hindsight you can you can see the actual toll of, that it took. You know, it was pretty pretty big, a lot to calculate.
0: Well, there wasn't... I mean, uh, I love America. It's one of my favorite albums that you guys did, but it, uh, there's not anything on it that's really single-ready, you know, especially yeah. for that radio at that time was a lot of mid-tempo pop rock songs. Uh, it was really mm-hmm. beginning that moment like, uh, I think Oasis came out a year later uh, with yeah.
1: uh, uh, What's well, the Story? And, more I, and, I, you know, the other thing that to me is, is it, it, it supersedes all of the... Cons- all the thoughts about what was the radio feeling like and what was the trend and what was this, those things were all elements. But ultimately the, 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 biggest. Issue that we faced was just internal discord that, you know, the black crows didn't need a radio single. We didn't need MTV. We needed to all be on the same page. Yeah. Because, because when you're on the same page, all those things follow your fan. Ba- like you said, we made it really hard to be a fan of the band. You know, it's like if you want to piss on a record company or, or a corporate radio, that's fine. But you, when you piss on your own fans, that's that's unfortunate. You know, that's just sad because you have people who have no stake, they have no skin in the game. They just love your music and they just want to love your band and they will yeah. do anything if you just shoot straight with them. And, yeah. and that was always a problem with, with the Black Crows. Always There was always, there was a lot of history being written, rewritten in real time, you know, like anytime a band member changed. We just... We just never had the ability to stop and look at it with any perspective and go, wait a minute, what are we doing? And why, how are we, we just kept going faster and faster. Everything was like, let's just work harder and harder. And, you know, and and again, it it all worked out. It was fine. It was a great band. I mean, we made great music. I'm not saying that, but the things that, um, ultimately and always consistently derailed the band were just us not being able to get our heads together. You know, when we were on the same page, nothing else mattered. Yeah. And then, and the, and the, you know, coincidences Our commercial fortunes followed. You know, when we were a united front, uh, ticket buyers were happier. Album buyers were happier. Promoters were happier because they're seeing a real thing. They're seeing a real thing. That's indefinable and has magic. And that's what we're, that's, that's what, that's what is, that's the the, the hardest thing to express. And you can explain all the other symptoms, you know, Mm -hmm. the other things like radio play or whatever, or record sales or ticket sales, but all of those things, are secondary to a band that's got a consistent communal vision, and when we were there, we were unstoppable.
0: You know, it's interesting. I I, I think about that time, and and I think about from ninety four ninety six, right around there. You guys put out uh, Amorica and Three Snakes. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. Those are the
0: best hindsight albums in the Crow's catalog. To be honest with you, those mm-hmm. are the albums yeah. that seem to get better as they age. And I think um, it maybe it's because they were not exactly in lockstep with what was happening at the time, you know? Sure. And I think that that is a a dedication to the way you guys played because that unit uh, from 91 to to 97 was the best you guys ever sounded as a band. I think it was just, you guys were, that that was it. You had the, I think it was uh, Scott, uh, Scott Gorham of uh, Thin Lizzy, uh, said something about not wanting to break the magic circle when uh, they fired Brian Robertson in 1977. He said, it's because, because you never get that back. He is like, yeah, that yeah. magic never comes back. Even though they got Gary Moore, who's a great guitar player in the band, but it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. The magic. Well, is if you want to go
1: back to basketball, you know, the Pistons traded Adrian Dantley for Mark Aguirre and everyone thought they were crazy. That's true. But, but they want to ring because of that trade. Mm-hmm. You know, chemistry is, chemistry is the entire thing. I mean, I, that's, that's, you know, basketball and rock bands. It's all about chemistry. Uh, I mean, you can't, you know, it's. You, and and like, I've seen the who with Zach Starkey and he's great. And it's cool to see that band, but that's yeah. not like seeing the who, yeah. you know, it's not like you're going back to, you know, and, and it's not like the who, and I don't, I don't know what kind of drummer Keith Moon could possibly be in his late seventies, but you know, it's like, no matter what you do, there's just a thing that bands have that when you lose that, it's a, it's a, you know, it's interesting too. And I, I learned a lot when I toured with a band called Stereophonics.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, their drummer, Stuart, uh, when they let him, you know, I was filling in for, it was one show and then two shows and then a week. And then it turned into 10 months. That's how it went. Yeah. And we were all good friends and Stuart and I were very close. We were just total dude buddies. You know what I mean? And, and i spent the better part of a year telling him, dude, you got to get your shit together. Like, cause he had some issues and, and commitment issues to the band and they were really frustrated. And I'm like, I'm just sitting there, you know, trying to be older brother guy to them all going, you guys have something that's really, really special. And you know, this is not talking out of school. Cause I love Stuart dearly, but he was not a great drummer. He wasn't someone that was going to, this is, <clears throat> this is not a band replacing John Bonham but Stuart was a integral part of the culture and of the vibe of stereophonics. Like he was that band, you know, that band was three kids from a village in Wales and he's yeah. one of them. Yeah. And so when I stepped in and filled in for him for that tour, you know, plenty of people could say this and I wouldn't argue it that the band never sounded tighter. I'm just a different drummer than Stuart. And it made a lot of things easier for them to do live, yeah. but was it better or was it actually stereophonics? Like, no, it wasn't, you know, there was a, that kid had a magic to him. I mean, he really did. And I was aware of it and I'm having a great time and I'm doing my best. And, and I thought like, this is a great chance for them to figure out what they're going to do next. And, you know, whether I stay or they get someone else, this is I'm helping them out a lot because I've kind of, I've stepped in, they don't have to cancel shows and there's all those kind of things. But they, I knew Kelly and Richard had to go through a period of time where they're like, God, we're replacing an original member. And this is weird. And they didn't run from that at all. They were totally aware of what that did to their chemistry and they talked about it every day and I talked about it with them and I said you know Audley Freed and Sven Pippen can play their asses off but it's not the same I trust I get what you're going through it doesn't you know I don't know that Mark Ford and Johnny Colt would have been nearly as good on live at the Greek as Audley and Sven were yeah. I mean maybe they would be but but the but but Audley and Sven were incredible yeah. that band was perfect for that date but would I go back and keep those same six guys forever? Of course. You know, that, because there was a magic to that, that a member, like me joining Stereophonics, I could have never, it, you have to go into a different direction for it to make sense for at least for a while, for everything to find its place. Yeah. But the chemistry those guys had, the chemistry we had with Mark and Johnny in the band, you just can't get it back. And, and we didn't try to get that same thing back, but we also would have never admitted to ourselves how special it was. Because, you know, it would be too hard to admit that maybe we're not as good without those other guys. We just weren't at a place. I mean, I, I, I said that to myself. I didn't say that out loud very often because it was not an acceptable train of thought.
0: You know, it's funny. I The 96 tour and that entire chapter, uh, particularly leading up to the intervention for Mark, uh, Mark Ford, was absolutely difficult. That was difficult to read. Uh, yeah. Because the entire thing was pain. And anyone who's known, I lost a friend in 2003 who was painfully addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. And anyone who has been around someone who is like that, it is, it is chaotic and it controls everything, you know, and yeah, and you guys had three, you know, and within the same orbit. I mean, not, I mean, one of them wasn't obviously a junkie, but uh, it that has well, addiction to be, is you know? addiction
1: is addiction is addiction. You know what I mean? And, you know, the band was, depending on your definition of the band, there were three, four, or five addicts operating at all times, you know. Oh, I mean, and I put myself on that maybe list. I mean, just with the amount I was drinking. I didn't have a hard time stopping alcohol, but I certainly used it to great excess for years.
0: It is hard. To, and, and, and I think leading up to that chapter, I, I saw, I mean, you guys fortunately have played one of the, I think, the best venues in Denver, the Ogden. Uh, many times and in 96 I believe that was the first time you guys had played that and mm-hmm. I there's was a side alley to the Ogden and once the concert was over I kind of hung out for a bit and once you get into the the alley there's a door that leads right onto the alley and sit and I walk by and then sitting like standing against the wall outside uh, was Mark Ford smoking a cigarette mm-hmm. and uh I just steeled myself, walked over, and he looked depressed. He didn't look drugged, he looked really depressed. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I started talking, I I lived in California for a bit, and that perked him up a little. And that's that's the extent of my conversation. Out bursting of the do- through the door comes Ed Harsh. Uh and I'm gonna do my Ed Harsh impression. Hey man, anyone of you got a light? <laughs> I was like, I was like mm-hmm. Uh, I got a yellow lighter, and I don't smoke. I just happen to have one. And I gave it. And I, said, yeah. you can, and I said, you can keep that. And he goes, hey, man, thanks. <laughs> then he runs back inside. That was my Ed Hart story. But that whole yeah. area around the 96th, I believe after that uh, concert, you guys ended up going to a strip club or something like that. And that's when the confrontation It was happened. the night before. It was, it was the night, night before that concert. Yeah. It was
1: the night off, yeah.
0: And but I remember my my thought was like oh man there's something there's something seriously going on with Mark Uh, and and the book you illuminate that he was having some personal trouble and that was probably Mm. exacerbating things but living in that situation and you guys talk about that then that's got to be just rough uh, just in general for the entire band
1: well it's 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 rough for anybody that goes through situations like that and I think that a lot of the book is is entirely relatable to people who've dealt with addiction, you know, their own or in people that they love the, the thing that makes it worse for bands. And so typical for bands is you have the added element of bands going into this thinking, well, this is part of it. Yeah. You know, when you're, when your accountant buddy has a Coke problem, he's not going to work every day and people going like, Hey, did you do some Coke last night? You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's rock bands. It's part of the thing. Like you're supposed to be wasted or you're supposed to be pushing that, that envelope at all times. Um, and you know, everybody's guilty of that to an extent, you know, at least buying into the myth of what bands are. I mean, my myth was never about getting wasted and doing drugs, but I, you know, I certainly thought that all bands, I didn't think bands were like the monkeys, but I didn't think, you know, I didn't think it was that far off because if you're out selling a bunch of records and playing shows and turning yourself into a great band, how could you ever have a bad day? Like to me, I was like, this is just great. Like, man, this is, let's, this is awesome. This is what we just spent four years talking about. Um, I didn't have any idea what I was dealing with in terms of other people's uh, addictions. And it took me years to wake up and admit that, that was really what was driving a lot of what was happening around me. Cause it's a very scary thing to admit. Yeah. And then as soon as you educate yourself on it, it's so freeing and doesn't make it any less sad, but at least you have an understanding of, of, you're not facing a, unknown monster you're looking right into the eyes of something going oh this is what this is and this is catastrophic oh yeah but at least i understand it you know
0: did you guys i mean you guys end up having to uh kick mark out and then johnny uh quick and did it ever bug you guys in hindsight that you know there seemed to be a and i what i would describe as a and i'm part of it you know, like an outsized cult of mark ford <laughs> that probably was like he was such a mm-hmm. you know mark mark fucking ford basically. And yeah. did it? Did it like? Did it like ever bug the bands? Like, you know, this guy, we we kicked them out for a reason. And there's uh, this. it, just it just didn't bother didn't, me. I
1: yeah. can speak for me. It, yeah. it never bothered me in the least. I mean, I. That said, I know I remember people coming up and going like, "How can you do this without Mark?" And a combination of me being sad and angry at at us, and feeling bad for Mark, and being angry at Mark, all those confusing emotions. And like I said before, I had a bit of clarity as to what I was dealing with. I'd absolutely go, we were a band before Mark. You know, he's great, but we, what do we want us to do? Wait, we're not going to wait around for him. You know, I had a chip on my shoulder about it, but it wasn't that I actually thought we were better off without Mark. It's just I didn't know how else to answer that question. Mm-hmm. But when I would talk to people, you know, we were touring in 99 with Bear Jr. And, and I remember in Evansville, Indiana, sitting around a soundtrack and just talking with those guys about bands. And and Chris made this big – he did this whole thing about, you know, I love the Stones, but without Mick Taylor, what's the point? And Grimey, the guy in Bear Jr., Said, no, oh, it's kind of like the Black coast without Mark Ford." It's just, I mean, there's just this. You know, it was just silence, and and I looked at I looked at Grimey, and he kind of looked at and he looked over at me, and I winked at him like, "That was a nice one, man," you know. And, and of course, something was changed immediately, and then within a few minutes, you know, Chris got out of there, and everybody we were, and I was with those guys in that band, I was laughing my ass off. I was like, "Man, you know," because it's just it's like, how can you deny that? It's just what it was. And again, I you know I don't. I don't, again, it's all about chemistry. You know, there's a million bands that I would get into as a drummer and it would be terrible. Yeah. And I'm sure there's bands that Mark Ford could play in where it'd be like, okay, that's fine. But you know, there's certain things that fit and and Mark Ford and the Black Rose was a perfect, it, it just made perfect sense. And he and Rich, he and Rich played off each other without, they weren't even trying back then. They weren't communicating back then in terms of like hey if i do this and you do that let's see if this works they were just doing shit and without linear conscious thought more often than not and it was it was obvious to everybody else like well this is pretty fucking great
0: well but i remember on the further
1: tour there were or no wait that the the summer uh tour in 96 yeah there were uh it it was an election year and there were Fans had made Bumhurst stickers that said "Robinson Ford '96" like a campaign slogan, <laughs> and uh, and and Rich was pissed. He was like, what "The fuck, you know?" And I said, "That means you. That's you and Mark, Rich." You know, and he was like, "No, it's not." You know, he's all mad. You know, it's, it's just. But no, I mean, we were well aware of the fact that that what what people always thought about Mark in the band. Yeah,
0: I uh, it's funny. Mark, and, and when you brought up Robinson Ford, Mark and uh, Chris did end up doing a side project together in 93. Uh was called Sweet Pickle Salad, and then they did something as Foamfoot, uh, like a, some covers mm-hmm. they did with I think Craig Ross and Jimmy Asher. Yeah. And did that ever bother you guys in the Wait, band? Wait, did I? Used? I did.
1: Oh, no, no, I didn't do Foamfoot. I did one called The Big Toe Jam. Oh, did you? And that was... Jimmy Ashurst and Chris and Mark and me and, uh, and Charlie Quintana. We had double drummer. Wow. And, uh, Oh, who am I forgetting? Uh, oh, and Rami played keys. And, oh. um, and that was at the Troubadour, but I think foam foot had already happened or it happened shortly thereafter. Yeah. Um, but uh, sweet people salad. That was the thing with the jellyfish guys, right? Yeah. 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 Sweet was salad good. Was it? I mean, I, I don't remember it, but I remember that I liked it
0: oh they're they're on youtube uh, it's uh it's one of the it's one of those uh if Chris Robinson had a free reign it turned into it was like very hippie sounding
1: yeah right right and,
0: and uh I think that yeah, that,
1: I, I remember getting it like he yeah. sent it to me and I thought it was really cool
0: did, did anything I'm,
1: andy Sturmer's on I'm gonna be good with <laughs> oh I, yeah
0: I, did, I I personally like him and and but but what was I was always thinking is like this that had that had to have pissed rich off i mean i, I he hated it, uh, like, I, Chris, like, deviating from the partnership, I think, was probably a big thing for him, right?
1: Probably. Oh, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I think, well, Chris used to talk, he was talking before Southern Harmony came out about making a solo record. That was there early and often. And that, that, that pissed everybody off. We're like, and I used to say the same thing. Cool, just get us a couple records in. And do it for your own sake, like yeah. establish yourself a little more, get the band to a place. And those two worlds, I, I, I mean, I, I never had a problem when he would talk about doing these other things because a, I just thought, well, you're a creative guy. You've got a million ideas. That doesn't mean they're all great, but you've got a ton of them and you've got way more ideas than the black crows that will ever need or have time to do. Yeah. And so, of course, go do other stuff. I was at, back in Atlanta playing. I was jamming with friends. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it, everybody's busy and doing other things. Yeah. And so it didn't bother me at all. I never saw any of that stuff as a threat to the Black Crows in reality. I, I remember having concerns at times that Chris was overestimating his ability yeah. to create something that would be big. You know, he wasn't doing it so without thinking every one of these things could supersede the Black Crows. He was always like, I could do this and be just as big as the Crows. That was That was concerning just because it's like, dude, you're going to spend a lot of energy on something that's pointless. It's not going to work. Yeah. But as far as him being creative and doing things as, but on, on paper, the idea of him working with other things was always like, yeah, whatever, everybody's doing other stuff. Yeah. You know? And so like the, the gig, I, you know, I remember just flying out to LA. That was like over Christmas break. Like that was in the middle of the Southern harmony tour, I think, where we did the big toe jam like early 93. Mm -hmm. And um, it it was just, it didn't even, it it was just something to, you know, it's like, oh, I'll come to LA and jam for a night at the alley and then go play the Troubadour. Sure. I mean, it was no big deal. It was just something, it was just fun. It's just what you do.
0: Yeah. You know, know, the whole thing, speaking of side gigs, that uh, track you did with uh, Mark Morton and uh, playing with Martin, the Axis. uh, Great song. You're drumming on that. You kind
1: of crept out.
0: I'm sorry, uh, Mark Morton. Uh, no relation. Oh hell
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Got some of god.
0: Yeah, that yeah. was a. You're drumming on that. Proved to me that you can you can play anything on on, on drums. And I, uh, because it's it's a little different from from you know Crow's stuff, and definitely different from Trigger Hippie. Um, and that's the first. That is the last time, and the only time that you've played with Mark Ford, and he wasn't playing with you. You guys did it separately. Yeah but that's the, since 1997, that was the first studio, like, with you two since 1997.
1: Um, Well, we did, we did something in 05, we did a a song with George Cooley, called Backdoor Santa, in 2005. I forgot about that, that's right, yeah, that's right, yeah, so Mark would have been on that, obviously, but, um, yeah, I guess that's true, that was the last time, Um, yeah, that was funny, I was actually at the studio, it was a studio at Long Beach, and Mark said, Mark Morton, we were finishing up and he just, he was kind of, I could tell he was, he was like, so are you you uh, still in touch with Mark Ford? <laughs> and I was like, dude, you can ask me any questions. It's no big deal. He goes, Oh, well you, you in touch with Mark. I said, yeah. And then he goes, Oh, I mean, do you think he'd play on this? I go, yeah. I just texted him. I was like, Hey Mark, you want to go to Long Beach and play in a session? And he's like, sure. And I <laughs> said, well, here, text this guy. It's his record. And then a couple of days later, Mark did it, but it was like, But for Mark Morton, who, if anyone doesn't know, he's the guitarist in Lamb of God, which is like a raging speed metal band. Yeah, he's he's just a Crow's fanatic, and Mark Ford is his guy. So it was, uh, (laughs) and those things are always awesome. I love that, you know, and like someone's telling me how much they love any member of the band, and it's like, yeah, just call him here. He is, you know. It's like, oh, it's great.
0: Well, that your drumming in that was superb, absolutely superb. I, I thanks. It was it was something I, I liked hearing stuff like that because it makes me understand that, you know, musicians, aren't just one thing. They're, they're many yeah. things. And uh, hearing that and hearing Mark, be able to rip out a you know, a great solo that goes all the way through the end is is also fantastic mm-hmm. because it's, 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 just, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm a music nerd, but I, I love hearing that stuff. Um, yeah. You know, I've been talking about it, you know, to pivot back. I, I've been talking about, you guys have access moments. So like, to quote the song, but moments where things tipped. Um, And I've got two tour decisions to ask you about that maybe you would know what the thought process was going into it. I thought it was a little uh, interesting that you guys did the further tour. Uh, Was that Chris's idea? Because you guys didn't seem to fit with uh, what was going on there. Uh,
1: Very much something he wanted to do. And it was the, the not only was it the best option we had, it was the only option we had. I mean, um the three snakes tour had been uh, compared to Amorica and definitely compared to southern harmony had been a, a just a total bust i mean we we broke even you know we were still playing theaters but instead of multiple nights we were playing one yeah. and a lot of those shows didn't sell out and and again it, it's kind of a bummer in the moment I, i'm not saying this with you know looking back with anything other than the reality it's in the industry that trust me you you know promoters are your partners like that's who you know touring bands it's like your customers in a certain sense and this is not the way we thought but i'm just explaining this to somebody who's curious about this Your customer is actually the promoter the promoter's customer is the ticket buyer you know what i mean like in a simple really simplistic way of putting this stuff and so our customers our first line of customers are promoters and they were telling us hey guys um this thing we've been working together now for five or six years, it's going sideways real fast. And we're seeing a tremendous drop in tickets and we're concerned. And, and, and the band and myself, even at the time was guilty of this would look at that as, Oh, you're just all money grubbers and you don't care about our long-term prospects and what they care about more than anything is advanced long-term prospects. Yeah. And, and of course it's because they, but they want business partners. And the thing is, we got along with those guys. Like we met all these promoters and worked with them and we were a good hang and they were cool. And we had good relationships and we just immediately or not immediately, but we, we slowly, those, those, you know, we, we were doing things that weren't uh, that we were doing things that we thought were cool. And we had our partners, the promoters going, Hey, this isn't going to work. And we were like, we don't care. And we had Pete Angeles very clearly saying why something wouldn't work. Here's five ways to make it better. And we would ignore all five and just kept doing our thing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, when I look back, I think I said this on your, I, I told someone this the other day, what was it? Um, you know, I don't look back and, and think about what could have been, because I don't know what could have been. But I know that what did happen, we were constantly looking at decisions and making them based on things other than conscious thought and linear planning you know it was just like shooting from the hip and that's cool uh, when you're young and it's cool but when you get to a certain point where again we're not even agreeing with each other on what these decisions are and that's always like the if if we were united in what we were trying to do we would have been fine and like on the further tour no one else wanted that tour really but Chris but once we got there you know it's time to get step up and play and we felt a little reticence from the audience to embrace this well that puts all six of us on the same page right away yeah, And all of a sudden we're like, man, we got this. And I know some of those nights we were killing it. You know, it was yeah. really good again. Yeah. Like we found a common enemy. So we found, uh, we were united, you know, yeah. it all, everything, all the roads ultimately lead back to were we together or were we, you know, divided, you stand, united, you fall, whatever that is, you know, <laughs> united, you stand, divided, you fall. <laughs> yeah, And, um, and so, but you know, that tour was, go back to your original question we just didn't have any better options you know promoters had were telling us after the fall of 96 we're not making any offers we'll give you club offers but we're not going to give you any guarantees up front you know because and and you could say well I went to a show in 96 and it was sold out yeah it it took way longer to sell out than it would have two years earlier and the promoters who do that for a living are going if we come back if we put you back in this market you will sell half as many tickets because another thing promoters do is they sit in the audience and watch the crowd react and then they talk to fans. Did you like this show? I mean, it's their business, their business is to build bands and, and maintain careers with the manager and with whoever else is working there. And so our prospects in 97 were virtually non-existent. Yeah. And, and again, because of that, I, we pulled out what I was my favorite black crows album, which was banned. You know that at, at a time when we had no business making a good record, I think we made a great record. And I'm not saying that we had the best songs on that. I think some of them are great and there's a couple of throwaways, but the vibe is so spectacular and the feel of those tracks and the unity and the common purpose in those tracks to me still is just mind-boggling, especially when you consider where we were coming from.
0: Well, your drumming on Another Roadside Tragedy is fantastic. Uh, it's a, that's one of my favorite drum tracks of yours. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's amazing how raw but together. <coughs> raw but together. I just the way I describe band, and I understand the way it was recorded, since it was all you know. You guys didn't weren't you you know recording with separation, uh, mm-hmm. that it made it hard, particularly when they re released it in two thousand six. Yeah,
1: those 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 mixes? Are, I mean, I love Paul Stacey. Those, that, yeah. those mixes are not great, and and you know it's just it's we had the rough mixes we did ourselves were should have been released. I mean, it was just in the studio in the moment, the original. You know, I still have a DAT tape of that original thing I walked out of that studio with, and that oh, wow. stuff sounds amazing.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And I was just going to point that out too, because it didn't really capture because the bootleg has been out there for a while. Didn't really capture what I envision that sounding like, because it was. No, really, I've heard I've heard really stuff. That,
1: um, I've heard a few things, and they're they're actually a little sped up. You know, there was they were reproduced so many times. Like, I've heard takes of uh, the – but the the best ever fine piece anyway was that Purple Dragon one. Oh, yeah. And there's another one floating around that we did a month later in Nashville that's nowhere near as good. The Nashville recordings, those all sucked. But the ones we did in Atlanta at Purple Dragon, that fine piece anyway is just – it's the slowest we ever played it, and it's the best by far.
0: Yeah, I, I was a big, big, big fan of that. And that was really was – one of my fav- if not my favorite black crows album was banned yeah just because i think that was a synthesis of where you guys were in 1997 i think said. it's
1: chris's best uh, set of lyrics for a whole album start to yeah. finish in terms of on- being very honest and direct i don't think he ever got close to that again they were fantastic
0: yeah uh wyoming and me is a great song it's just, yeah it's beautiful yeah. it's a very lonely song but it's it's wistful yeah. too it's a, yeah it's really good and i actually listened to that Driving through Wyoming, I I was going oh, up really? to ja- I was going up to Jackson, and yeah. uh, just listening to that, just it it fit the wind swept plains basically, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the other crux moment that I want to talk about, and thank you again for I don't want to keep you all day, but thank you again for joining me, man. Um, sure, is you talk about coming back for that reunion in in two thousand five, and obviously two, by two thousand six ed was not doing well Mm -hmm. and it started to reflect there's people who've seen some performances that ed was starting to slip um then mark quits suddenly like two days before the tour um at that point were you like this is happening again maybe i should follow
1: oh yeah absolutely
0: because because you didn't really go over that in the book and i was always wondering what your thought processes was maybe you were thinking like I can't go through this again.
1: No, I really yeah, no, I was very much thinking that. I just wanted to um you know the the it it was I understood Mark's decision. I wasn't surprised by it because it was like history repeating itself by the time we finished that tour at the end of 06. He was uh you know, you could just sell. He was checked out. He, he's gone. Just like he had been in 97. I was like, here, it was nine years later and I just relived this somehow. Yeah. And it was really sucked for me after 2005 because that was the first year Mark and I really, truly hung out a lot. Just the two of us. Like we yeah. always got along fine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were plenty of times on the road in the 90s where it, for whatever would happen, it ended up me and Mark and we hang out or go to a movie or go to a bar or do whatever. We were always fine together. Yeah. But in 2005, we were actually like spending hours and long conversations and really just very relaxed, really got to know each other on a level we would just never hit before. And so to see him go back down was, was, was awful. I mean, it's just like, Oh fuck. I was terrified for Sven because yeah. I thought, well, he's going to go too. And thank God he didn't, you know, um, and, and that was a, a a huge relief that whole summer of 06. I was, I spent a lot of time with Sven just like, you good, man. We cool. <laughs> we hanging in, you know, and, yeah. and, um, and, and Ed was, uh, but you know, it was, it was really sad. And I, I could see that the Eddie thing wasn't going to work. Eddie had been, um you know, we went to Japan in the summer of 05. And on that trip, he had a really, I mean, it was clear he was in a bad way back in August of 05. And yeah. so, you know, um, but then it just got to a point where by 06, you just couldn't hide it anymore. And yeah, there are tapes. If you listen to the Boston gig from the summer of 06, I mean, Ed could barely play. And that's a story I didn't tell in the book. It's one, it's the saddest thing ever. He just had, he had a, we left New York and Ed was in, in a, in a state, we'd never seen him in before. And, um, you know, he had, he had been like mugged. I mean, he had the shit kicked out of him. I mean, it was awful, terrible. Um, and so, you know, I, the Ed thing leaving was just like, I, I, I was literally thinking this is for his own good. Like he has to get off the road yeah. and he wasn't interested in rehab. Um, he was just like, no, nah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And you know, the Mark thing was a shock though, only because it happened right before that tour. Like Ed, I knew Ed was coming. Um, I thought Mark was going to at least finish out the year and he didn't. Um, it's funny. I, one thing I've had people, ask me about, I'm glad I just remembered this because if you're, you know, you said you're a big Black Crows nerd.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I've had at least half a dozen people and they always go like, why did you guys add dates in the fall if those guys were in such bad shape? And, and that tour was planned the whole year. That, that tour was not like put together really. when the summer ended. Yeah. You can't put up a three month tour with four weeks notice. I mean, They're everybody true. went into this. We, we went into 2006 Everybody was, and I, and I just got a tweet the other day about this. So that's what I'm thinking about it. Like just to clear something up, there was not a, we have to go do more dates for the next two months. That was the plan the whole year. That was not an added on section of the tour. That yeah. said, I would have been more than happy to stay home. Like When when I got the call that Mark just quit uh, and Paul Stacy's flying back to play, I was like, well, I love Paul, but let's just pull them. Come on. What are we doing? Like, yeah. We already have a piano player we haven't played with. You. Now we have two guys we've never played with, and we don't even get a rehearsal. Yeah, that, that stuff's a little—that's a little crazy. Well, um, I mean, to Rob Flores and Paul Stacy's credit, they showed up and played really well.
0: Well, I saw—I think you guys played the Denver uh, Music Festival in 2007. It was outside in really hot weather, <laughs> and I think that oh was. Oh my the god!
1: One. I know what that was. It was. It was. It's some like. Uh,
0: it was over. What's it was the
1: sporting goods store. Yeah, Dick's,
0: um, Dick's Sporting Goods Park.
1: Oh, yes. It was like 105 degrees. <laughs> yes, yeah, and it was terrible.
0: It was it was awful, and I think that was the that was with uh, Rob and uh, Paul Stacey. I think I mm-hmm. think it, it could have been. Uh, yeah, because uh, um, uh, uh, what for the guitar player? Um, <laughs> the next guitar player, uh, Luther 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 yeah. Dickinson wasn't in the band yet um and well you know what i
1: i'm going to complete a thought cuz you said you know when mark and ed left and and this could be me just rationalizing a little bit but at the time i remember thinking i mean luther's name came up really right away and i was looking at the black crows and thinking well we had we were talking about making a record in 2007 which we ultimately did you know we were but the conversations in 06 were already about making another record yeah and I thought, well, if Mark and Ed aren't here and we do have new guys, you know, to me it was almost like, okay, we're going to bring back the band as a recording act for the first time in years. Yeah. You know, a clean break. Maybe this is a, you're, you're, you're grasping at straws a little bit, but also to think of Luther joining the band, that was exciting to me. I was like, that's different. We've not had a guy like that ever. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's a cool that, I mean, we're not trying to, recreate ourselves we're trying to reinvent ourselves that's one way to do it you know yeah and then and then right away with adam uh, mcdougall too i had the same thing I, I didn't have to talk myself into being really excited to make music with those two guys at all yeah i loved i love both of their playing so yeah. you know there was definitely a sense of okay well let's just see where we can take this thing and um it doesn't mean that you know losing mark for the second time and then losing ed wasn't just awful <laughs> it doesn't mean that at all it just is you know, you just, as I said, we just would keep going. Well, let's just get on to the next thing. And the next thing was at least still appealing to me.
0: Would you, were you like, but I guess in the in, in the grand scheme of things, and, and uh, I'll, I'll let you go here soon. I, I really appreciate your patience. Um, were you like, at that point where you're like, I can't go, like I would say, like, I can't go through this again. Like, but you, but it yeah. seemed to me like yeah. you were in a different, Frame of mind, 2005 to 2013, than you were it wasn't previously. Gonna,
1: yeah, I I didn't want to go through it again, but not for the same reasons. Um, it wasn't it wasn't uh, something that I it wasn't tearing me apart anymore. I had I had educated myself not just about addiction but about codependency. That's my particular struggle. And, and my willingness to put myself into a fire that I didn't start that had gone, I, you know, I wasn't doing that anymore. I wasn't injecting myself into the lives of other people's chaos to try to help them. I, I realized I'm way in, and out of my depths. So I can't help an addict. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a dragon. And I don't even have a sword. I have nothing. Yeah. I just, there's nothing I can do. I can offer support. And then I just step away. Yeah. You know, it's like you carry a message, but you can't carry the person. Yeah. You know, carry the message, not the man. And so I had definitely figured some of those things out. So I was, I was upset. Like you talked about earlier, do you know what Mark Ford means to the fan base? Believe me in 2006, my greatest concern beyond, I hope Mark's okay. It wasn't for my central nervous system or how's the band going to, it was just on a pragmatic, Oh my God, we're doing this again to our fan base. We're, We're kicking them in the nuts again for supporting us by taking away Mark Ford. We're running him off. And I don't know what we could have done differently. I don't know if if you're offering someone help and they don't want it. But at the same time, I was very aware of whatever momentum we felt in 2005, which was considerable. I felt in the fall of 2006, like, well, that's all gone. Now we really are starting over. Like now this really is a rebuild.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I—it's funny—and and, and, and this will be probably the how I'll wrap this up. You know, there's been various points in in the Black Crow's career where there's been the revive. You know, we've we've revived this, uh, and mm-hmm. we, the first one of that was Jimmy Page coming along, yeah. and you get asked about Jimmy a lot. And I'm not going to uh, get have you repeat the stories you've already told, but I'll. What I kind of want to cover is this. Um, it's got to be hard to step into the shoes of John Bonham and the way you played on that tour I could tell and there's a lot of bootlegs of the the tour that you guys Mm -hmm. did uh, in 2000 specifically the way he looked at you and Chris was like I've got these guys and this Mm -hmm. is how much I like this because I don't think Jimmy had ever played with a drummer who got it like you did. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm not just, you know, blowing smoke up your ass here, but what what I'm saying is like his, the effect on him was profound. And I think that contributed to his disappointment with how it ended. You know, I was like, Oh yeah. Well, Jimmy, I mean, I
1: don't listen. Look, Jimmy is always a gentleman and says wonderful things publicly and all that, but, and I'm not talking out of school to say this, uh, because anybody that was there uh, would say the same thing. It was it was absolutely – he loved playing with Chris, playing off him. He loved having a front man that would engage like that. Yeah. You know, like, as Jimmy wants to perform and do his things and look at someone and get a response back. Yeah. And Chris was giving him that. And I don't think that Robert had given him much of that in the last couple of years of Page Plant. That thing had already been suffering. I mean, they were playing well or whatever, but, I mean, it wasn't like – Oh, this is so much fun. Like Robert was already chafing with page plant. Yeah. And so Jimmy got from Chris, what he'd been looking for. And then, and on a simply musical level, that was was what he got from me. Like he loved my attack and my approach. And so, and we talked about that stuff a lot, you know? Um, I mean, I talked about playing and what what we're doing with Jimmy more than I ever did with Rich because Rich and I didn't have to, because that's all we'd ever done is play with each other. Like we, you know, Rich and I, Um, I mean, I don't, it's, you know, I'll never, there'll never be a more consequential guitarist in my life than Rich Robinson. He and I learned how to play together. You can't, again, that's chemistry. You can't recreate that. You can't go learn how to play again with new guys. Yeah. But everything I had learned, uh, and everything that, that I'd wanted to be was always in service to the Black Crows. But to go play those Zeppelin songs, it was a chance to show, oh, well, I'm going to put it over here and now I'm going to be. I'm locking onto Jimmy's right hip now. This is the guy I'm going to go play with. Yeah. And Rich was playing rhythm and Audley's playing rhythm, but I'm following the, the lead, you know, we're the Thunderbirds and I'm following that first guy, you know, and I'm going with him. Yeah. And so I, you know, that was different for me. And it was different for Jimmy to have, like you said, a drummer who, I don't, I don't have all of Bonham's chops at all, but I think I, I think I've always had a very innate connection to Bonham's feel his swing. Yeah. And the fact that he would pull behind page. Yeah. And, and Jimmy and I talked about that a lot. Like he would never talk about the parts I played or the patterns on the kick drum, nothing. We just talked about feel and he'd have a suggestion for something or I'd want to clarify something. And we could talk about that for a while, but he was always obviously really happy playing with us. And, and, and those, I think he loved the whole band. I know he did, but it was, it was always about Chris and me being like those two anchors for him. That just made it really, really fun to play with. And he'd say the same thing. He has said the same thing.
0: Well, I think that's probably why he was so upset when Sven wasn't there. You know that that uh, oh, rhythm the big section. way. Oh,
1: yeah. oh, and I'm not taking anything away from Sven's playing because he just absolutely yeah. destroyed that shit. Yeah. And he was very disappointed. He was he was, uh, like despondent for a minute when he found out Sven wasn't going to be there. You know, it's like he just you know he showed up with the Black Crows. And if you think about like when they put together page plant, they had to go rehearse for weeks and weeks and weeks Mm -hmm. and work with Charlie and Michael and make sure that they were all, there was none of that with us. It was just like add water, boom, rock band, ready to go. Mm -hmm. And, and it's like, because it wasn't called Jimmy page and friends, it was called Jimmy page and the black crow. So he wasn't going to try to rebuild how we attacked anything. Yeah. It was, I'm joining your band and we're playing my songs. And it was just like, that's, Again, all that stuff was so natural and organic. That's why it worked. That's why it was so much fun for everybody and why the, the recordings still hold up. You can just tell everyone's having a great time.
0: Well, it's, it, wasn't, the, it, wasn't,
1: it, wasn't, it wasn't something that two managers got together and said, these two artists need a break. It was Jimmy called us. It was that simple. That's why it worked.
0: Well, it's, it, and, it's, and it shows on Live at the Greek and uh, I know it was re-released on vinyl a while back too. So, I mean, it, it still lives on and I, I yeah. hope... I, I, you guys did such a great well, job. And Jimmy,
1: and Jimmy, Jimmy loves that record. I mean, he really does. He was so pleased. He went from not wanting anything to do with a live record to listening to tapes and going, Oh my God, we got to put this out. I mean, <laughs> and uh, you know, the last time I, last time I saw him was probably five years ago. And it's the first thing he brings up, you know, he goes, I, was, I put on live at the Greek last month, you know, <laughs> man, it really holds up. You know, he's, he's excited. Yeah that's great well you know it's i
0: steve you've been fantastic and i and i really okay. hold on
1: now if you're let me just say this if you're uber you're obviously taper guy and collector and you're you're a crow's geek
0: yeah
1: so if you have if you want to do your lightning round three or five quick questions everyone's afraid to ask go ahead
0: oh okay
1: because i can tell by the questions you've already asked (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that, that, and i've said this in several interviews i'm always like go ahead what what, what are you afraid to ask i don't <laughs> care i'll answer it what lay um, it on me
0: lay it on you okay well uh let me think here uh,
1: okay actually
0: why the fuck didn't title song come out okay just in general i uh, See, it's a my fine question <laughs> my, my uh i like title song is a great song uh, and you guys mm-hmm. played Killed in concert. It was never sounded the same without Mark. That's one of those songs. I, I th-
1: very true. No doubt. You would have to ask Christopher about that one because that was always his call. Everybody else was ooh, to a man. Like, you know, that's the problem with the Morica. We had Exit, Bewildered, Furious, Title Song. They're just sitting there, yeah. feathers. It's like, dude, um, yo, let's go. Let's go. Like the bands that we always loved including the Grateful Dead for that matter, but the Stones and Zeppelin, you know they made records on the bounce. You're on tour, you take a day off, you go record one song. Two weeks later, you record another song. You're in the mode, you're in the groove. You get your tracks done. That's why that stuff in New Orleans sounded so good. That's why the demos we did, going back to the Shake Your Money Maker tour for Words You Throw Away, that was so great because we're walking off stage, going to a town, getting up in the morning, setting up in a studio, we're tracking, and then the next day we're back on stage again. You just can't replicate that. And I, I think the Black Crow should have always made records on tour because we were doing them yeah. and they were always great. And then, we, and then it, was, it was unilaterally, singularly a Chris Robinson thing of, no, the, we did that on tour. Now we have to start from scratch with a whole new batch of songs. And, and if anyone wants to put P25 London up against any of the five songs I just named, go ahead. <laughs> but you're out of your fucking mind you know it's, it's just fucking stupid uh,
0: yeah i know and I, I was like i'm a guitar player I played it like 30 years and i was just figuring out a guitar part to ed's organ intro to title song and I, I, that's yeah. how much i love that song yeah. and it and th- that's why it's always bugged me it's like it's there's two recorded versions of it one with luther one with uh
1: oddly right
0: and none of them sound like they should
1: right no, it's, it, listen, I, sorry, I lost you first. There you no, go. Sorry, there you go. Uh, no, 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 not at all. Those are just, those are just, those songs are what the, you know, they were done the way they're supposed to be done. I mean, look, you can put on, what's some of the, st- uh, like Song of the Flesh or a Dirty Hair Halo, you know, it's yeah, like. yeah. I'm not going to say those are the greatest songs ever written, but only that band is going to play those songs and make them feel like that. You know, this is true. like, this is like we habit. could, we could bust out dirty hair halo some nights. And it was like, I mean, it was just like a fucking lunar shot. It was just yeah. a rocket taking off when it, who the, when it would hit the end on the big jam out and then go to the halftime. I mean, it was as heavy as anything we ever did ever got. And it started as this very light, You know, almost like a blind Melanie, like "Hey, Uh hippy dippy," and that was the best of what we were able to do at that time. And that's all—that's Mark Ed, Johnny Rich, and Steve and Chris. There's no one else is doing that song like that. No,
0: you guys, you guys were like when you guys were locked in. There was nothing like it. There was nothing like it. Particularly now, I've always felt. What's the song?
1: What's the song that we never recorded that we did once that everybody's always obsessed? Pastoral. Pastoral. Um, Yeah. There's a live version of that that uh boa sent me years ago from when we played a club in atlanta right when we finished making three or in the middle of making three snakes mm-hmm. we played the cotton club that's the thunderbolt grease slappers gig And oh, yeah. i <laughs> heard pastoral from there <laughs> It's just probably five or six years ago and boa just sent it to me and i put it on and i was like holy hell listen to that but, you know, yeah. You guys this were good. This,
0: I, yeah. You guys, like, there's something, there's a tribute to what you guys, and not, once again, it sounds like blowing smoke up your ass, but, I mean, you, when you guys were, like, in, there was something special. I mean, people like 96 a lot, but I agree with you, 95 was better. The the, the Amorica mm-hmm. or bus tour was better because you guys still had your edge. And yeah. I. that's one of the reasons I appreciate that a lot. And you guys still did the jamming stuff. Now, uh, one reason I will say 96 was great was because Chris's voice was amazing in 1996.
1: Well, Um, yeah, I, you know, it's always degrees of separation between, you know, like when I say I prefer one year to the next, it's just generally speaking, you got to say what you prefer one, but I don't ever say one's better than the other. I mean, you know, the High is the Moon tour, the reason I think that was so great we never even tried to do that again. So how can you compare? It's like, that was a different game than we played in 95 and 97. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that light show was so specific and tailor made for those types of songs and the backdrops, you know, I prefer that. Like if I go to a show, I'd like a little bit of that in it, generally speaking. Um,
0: well, that was your strongest. But you word, know, I mean.
1: that's just, that's just, but that's just my personal taste. it doesn't mean it's not that something else wasn't good too.
0: See, so that was peak Gorman stage attire though the highs of the moon tour oh, yeah. was, you were Absolutely. you were on another level that that tour and i i uh, i think that shows a level of that, but doesn't that show a level of confidence because you guys were like hitting a huge stride leading up to the that's highs of the every, moon
1: every everything about that tour live you know paul stacy said once he goes live music is 95% confidence mm-hmm. and i believe that's actually something miles davis said but paul stacy said it to me and uh it's entirely true and, and if you look at any time, you know, what, like I said, when we were all together, when we were all confident at the same time, yeah, un- untouchable.
0: Untouchable. You guys were fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Um, and yep. I, you think, I think you guys, like I said, the, 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 more than anything else. Oh, by the way, words you, th- words you throw away. I think that's better than Remedy, personally. I, I like it. Mm-hmm. I like it better than Remedy. Um, I think that cool. is a, that is a, that is a, that is, and I know you guys kind of switched everything around, but um, to me that that's just Chris was like a that's a strutting song to me, yeah, sure, and yeah. Chris was at his strutting best at that point uh, I guess yeah. the, the the last of the rapid fire questions for me would be and this I, and I realize that this has not been rapid fire for me, uh, but uh Pete Angelus comes in, did he tell you any David Lee Ross stories
1: Oh <laughs> tons. And, and we have a bunch, too, because the first time we went to L.A., Dave was with us, like, every day for two weeks. Was he? <laughs> he was on the Jealous Again video set, and he was just out of his mind. I mean, we were – that's a whole nother chapter, man. Dave was out <laughs> of his mind. But the whole time we were making the Jealous Again video, he was right off camera. I mean, we were like, of all the people on earth <laughs> to be hanging out with us, Dave is our fairy godbrother. What the fuck just happened?
0: Wow. David, it's like, because, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing the uh... – the, I the that. Legi- uh, Strong. This, and I—that's uh, a big thing. But Pete must have brought a lot of lessons from dealing with two brothers in. The, oh, yeah. the, to, yeah.
1: to, to you guys, you know. Yeah, he—he uh, he went from the frying pan to the frying pan. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well. All right, man. Uh, I got to bounce. Yeah. All right. Thank you for joining me, man, and I appreciate it. Yeah, and, sure. Uh, uh,
0: what well, Steve Gorman? You can find him on Twitter. Uh, S- SGS This Fox. is true yeah. So, right on, uh, man. Over there. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Right. Steve.
1: See you, Jeff. Bye, Steve.